Ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, this is the Black Baseball Mixtape. This is the episode two recap of New Wave Baseball's Next Generation. I am joined, as always, by the homie Flo Beto. Flo, how you feeling? Fantastic. Part two is coming up. I'm feeling great. And we have a very, very special guest who was featured prominently in both parts of New Wave. He's a former Major League Baseball executive, Ronnie Burton. Ronnie, welcome to the mixtape. Well, I appreciate you guys. I mean, you're, you're way too kind. I appreciate the work that you do, you know, promoting our game. And, you know, I can't wait to get into this new wave. We're making moves. That I, That's the first question, because now that we've seen, we, we recapped strongly episode one. We talked a lot about the individual characters and the arcs of the story, because we come from it, not just from baseball, but also from culture and television. Now we've watched episode two so i guess the first question for both of you flo i'll start with you and then we'll yeah. bring ronnie in sure what is our overall impression of this project this mission how it was executed and what was the final like how do we feel about the final product that was delivered if i got to use a baseball analogy here was the triple right it wasn't a home run yet you can't have one property do all the answers but we talked about this going into the mixtape and that we always said there's not enough there's not enough representation in the game the representation was there uh for me it was more of a challenge of making it cool for the next generation but once we talk about the the aesthetic the cinematography the pacing of the uninterrupted brand and how they transferred it here i think is a good start for more content along those lines. So I was thoroughly impressed with it. And, and, and having it in both parts actually made it more digestible for me. I agree with you in the sense that I, I'm going but... to give it triple from a docuseries standpoint, strong triple. That's what I'm going to give it. When it comes to my reality TV brain and what could have been you want like fights, don't you? You want cake fights? You want fireworks? I want, I want sit downs. <laughs> I want I want reality TV show media. No, no, no. When it comes to the reality TV portion of it, I'm always thinking of what could have what could have happened, what could have been done. Episode two gives me more questions about what could have been done, what drama could have been pulled out. And so I'm going to give it a solid triple. Ronnie, we're going to exempt you from the overall base <laughs> rating. But I do want to ask, because you were in both parts, you've seen it now and released. It's getting out to the public. When you see it, it's different from recording it. What was your overall impression of the final product? Well, honestly, I mean, I think, like you said, the the way the cadence of, of New Wave and how I kind of viewed the stories of these you know, four young people, I thought it really did a great job. Um, you know, to kind of talk a little bit about, you know, what you guys have discussed in previous podcasts, I think the goal was really to provide awareness to what really goes on within the MLB draft process. And, you know, specifically, as you can see, it was highly featured with, you know, African-American voices, whether that be executives, whether that be players, uh, former players. Um, I think the, the biggest intent from my perspective having been a former black college baseball player and gone through some of these processes, not to the extent of some of these big leaguers, but, you know, from both the, the front office position and, you know, in my time in the game, there's for, for African-American athletes, most of them are multi-sport athletes that maybe play football and basketball. They're not aware of what's available to them within the game. And, and that really hinders, I think, the decision-making process as to what you pursue uh, in terms of your future, uh, especially when you're talking about specializing in one sport. I think this documentary did an unbelievable job of showing this is what the process is. Here are some faces and spaces and people who look like you have chosen this path. And then also it talks a lot about and shows a lot about, all right, the MLB draft process, the MLB draft combine. It's very similar now. I mean, it's relatively new to the game of baseball, but it's very similar to what's been emulated in other sports. But for what people, especially for me, having been a multi-sport athlete in high school, um, you don't really know what's available to you within the game because that story is not being told. You look at what Formula One has done. I know you guys kind of discussed this a little bit. We uh, love Drive to Survive. Podcast. But like Drive Survive <laughs> opened up an awareness to a whole nother audience um, here in America that was largely unaware of what was going on uh, in Formula One. And it was able to drive such, you know, 
intense interest that now we have races throughout the United States that are looking to build that brand. I'm here in Nevada. We have the Las Vegas Grand Prix going on. I think there can be a similar thing that goes on within, you know, black and brown athletes within the game of baseball. Just having a show like this and showing that awareness of what's available, what opportunities are there. You can go make money right out of high school as a professional baseball player. And there are people here that can show you that process. I think that's where the biggest win is. It's the awareness factor. And LeBron James and Maverick Carter and, you know, all the producers on the show, they're seeing like, hey, if LeBron James, who's the world's greatest basketball player, can see that, hey, this is worth investing in to show other athletes that look like me that baseball is an option. That's really important. And I think that's what we accomplished. I, could, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. Absolutely. Um, I I, back. Can I just step back real quick? What was that call like, though? I mean, you, we saw the final product because we're all viewers. We're all consumers mm -hmm. of it. But like, you don't really know what it looks like. I mean, I always hear stories about actors passing on a script because they couldn't see the final product. So someone calls you up saying there's a documentary with your name on it. Were you like, oh, yeah, definitely. Or like, tell me more. Or is it going to be a lane I want to participate in? What was that call like? Well, Honestly, on my perspective, I wasn't in there in those calls because I'm just I'm, I'm interviewing and going through and answering the questions in the doc. I think just from my perspective, what's interesting to me is like, yes, it's on YouTube TV and you've got YouTube being able to show it uninterrupted. And it's in partnership with MLB. I think the goal is, can we get the next season on a network? Because largely, even though YouTube is a huge audience and uninterrupted is, gonna, is doing an unbelievable job and MLB pushing this like we want this front and center. Because I think to really expand the scope, uh, we need to be able to tell the story of baseball in a way that other sports are utilizing, right? You see it, I mean, just top class, right? Bronny's kid has his own documentary, yep. right? And it's on Prime. Think about that. Like his own team, Sierra Canyon, a high school baseball, I mean, basketball team has their own, you know, docu-series that follows them. We need similar things like this happening in the game of baseball. But I think it's more of like, guess what? There is an appetite. We want to prove there is an appetite for, for consumers to, to get this type of content and then say like, hey, the game of baseball has a seat at the table. And I think, you know, it's kind of subliminal in, in that sense. But, you know, these stories need to be told. They're cool. They're fun. And as we build on this, we can see more content like this that, that you know, exposes the game of baseball to a new audience and really helps the next generation, hence new wave, you know, whether you're black, brown, green or yellow, to really embrace the game and say, hey, this is something that I want to be a part of, whether you're a fan, player, coach, whatever may have you. So one of the things I liked about your um, you're almost the Greek chorus in this one because you explain the actual process, mm -hmm. the eight the eight game of life between these two players, really putting into perspective. I mean, is that something you think about being almost like the voice of explaining this this serpentine process to a whole new theoretically generation of fans who are watching this for the first time? Is that really dawning you? You're just kind of like I walked in, answered my questions, <laughs> peaced out. Like, no, you're very like? much the string, very yeah. much the string of explaining how this process works. Well, I mean, number one, it's just an extreme honor, you know, to be able to take part in this. I mean, for me, I mean, if you've ever been an athlete, I know you guys probably had aspirations at one point, whether you played a sport or took part in a sport of like, oh, I think I can be a pro. And you think about that process and that arduous journey to get there. And, you know, for me, that's something that I, I had thought about in different parts of my life, you know, as a high school athlete, a college athlete, and then, you know, working on the other side, working for the commissioner's office and doing it. You know, it, it, it really does. I, I'm just completely honored that I was have the opportunity just to really explain it in depth because the draft process in MLB is very different than what you see in the NBA draft and the NFL draft. And from a pop culture standpoint, a lot of people understand that. For example, we had the NFL combine literally this past week. Yep. Everyone understands how important the 40 yard dash is at the, the NFL combine, right? Guys make millions or lose millions because of their 40 time, right? That's a very pop culture, you know, people understand that. They understand that there's two rounds in the NBA draft. They understand the lottery system and baseball is still rather foreign. And so for me to be the person to be able to explain this process and the different options that are there for, for athletes at different points in their career, I mean, it was a complete honor and I'm glad I was able to hopefully explain it in a way that was digestible. Um, but also like, oh, yeah. I'm here to answer any more questions because I believe that, 
you know, as the game of baseball continues to evolve and as other sports continue to evolve, there's a real value proposition for athletes, you know, to say, hey, this is something I want to pursue. You look at college baseball and the growth of that now, the difference that we have from the draft going from 40 rounds to 20 rounds, I think it's going to enhance the college game. You have name, image, and likeness. People are going to be choosing, I think, different routes now. And I think it's only going to enhance you know, MLB's relationship to, to the amateur game of baseball. And I think just having the chance to talk about this and the different routes to go. I mean, like I said, it was a complete honor. Let me tell, look, let me break down this part because I think I know how to get it on every, look, how to get it on network TV next season. Flo, oh, wow. you're gonna, no, you're going to follow me on this. Strap in. More drama. <laughs> What do you what, what do you want? No, no, and this is where this is where I this is where let's 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 go into the series now, episode two, yeah. and let's start about to to me the mm-hmm. most kind of compelling story that we told in episode two wasn't actually the draft. It wasn't. It was Jason Jones through yeah. episode two. My guy. Try flow your guy. It was your favorite arc the whole time. But Jason, we all we talked about where he's where he was positioned in episode one. He's got to prove it. He's got to is you know he's got to impress these scouts in a way from the combine that mm-hmm. is going to put him in a position to either get drafted, you know, pro- basically now that we know it, first round, get the number that he wants, or go to Arkansas and, and play baseball. And so you saw this arc with Jason in a way that you can see him, you know, talking to scouts. He's back home with his family. And then you realize day one comes and goes and his phone doesn't ring. And you can you can see that tension. Like, I felt that tension the way that the docuseries, the documentary kind of forced that tension of Jason sitting there trying to figure out if his number was going to get called round one, his name was going to get called round one, then it doesn't happen. And the family's there at the house, you know? And then he, day two comes and he's like, basically let's go, let's dad, let's go hit. You know, he's, Mm -hmm. he's hitting with his dad and he realizes, okay, now he's got to, you know, make some decisions and he makes the decision to, he's talking to his agent, his advisors, makes the decision to say, Hey, look, we're, we're real confident in the number we want. It doesn't look like it's going to get there. Alert all the teams that I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, take my name out of the draft. Next call is to Arkansas baseball. On, I mean, I thought this was great stuff. This was mm-hmm. the stuff where, and, I, and I'll, I'll make this point and I'll turn it over to you, Flo, and we'll, we'll get Ronnie in as well. From a series point, everything that we did with, with Jason was a little bit more dramatic than what we did with Justin and with Tamar, even knowing they were at the draft and got drafted. Right. Mm -hmm. Where I think, where I think that triple could have been a home run (laughs) is my, my boy, you know where I'm going with this. Okay. My boy, RJ Austin. Mm -hmm. just You know, he's in the barber's chair and back in Atlanta and we get the flash up where it's like, now RJ just decided to, to pull his name and go to Vanderbilt, which is, I think an amazing decision. Great decision. Cool. RJ was actually rated higher than Jason uh, when, at the, when we were looking at the numbers. He was 52nd. And <laughs> so I'm like, man, RJ's my guy. I was like, I wanted to know even more about that decision. I wanted to know how, like, what happened at the combine or whatever. What was he hearing for him to make that decision? And, and was it a struggle? It, the way he presents himself, and it's so awesome it did not seem like a struggle at him at all. When we talked about it in episode one, he was like, I'm good going to Vandy. And, you know, he wants to play in front of people. He thinks Nashville's great for him. And I know he's already doing excellent. He had two home runs in a game the other day. (laughs) So, but that's where, I I don't know if I'm the only one, but that's where I felt like I wanted to hear, I wanted to see that tension with RJ. I love seeing that tension with Jason. And we'll get to Tamar and Justin a little bit. But what did you think of that that arc of episode two? 
Well, I, I think that was part of a cool thing that they kind of book into. Yeah, you could argue that if you're an RJ guy, that it, it happened kind of early, kind of anticlimactically. But that raises a question I want to ask you about this, Ronnie. Like, you have the the many different options, right? The the, the main one, getting going to college or, or or taking the offer and starting at lessons rookie league, I guess rookie league or college league ball. Uh, and we see a little bit of the advisors and the parents in these children's ear, very formative time for them. But is there any people we're missing? Are they like, who was like not in these kids ears? And is there like a really pressure for them to decide or is, are, is there pressure that these are being decided for them and they have to like go along with it? Like how much of it is an independent decision for the athlete? How much of it is just weighing options for families? Is, is money really that big of a factor? What is everything really mixed for you? Well, I think in, in in my opinion, number one, as you guys were discussing, talking about the drama and, and and the arc of the show, we know that there are there are so many more conversations and dynamics at play. I mean, you talked about Jason Jones, and you know this guy was ranked in the top five, you know, heading you know throughout his junior year, then he kind of fell like a brick, unfortunately, um, because I think there there were some performances that were lacking and during the summer circuit, and you know those 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 evaluations don't necessarily stick, right? It's an evolving thing, and sometimes the more scouts get to see you, the more they can pick at your, your game. And, you know, I think that was the situation. I think he's an unbelievable athlete. I think that there's some opportunities for him to really grow in Arkansas, but to your guys's point, you know, when you're talking about a, a financial decision, if you're going to get a seven figure signing bonus or the potential mm -hmm. to, when you're a 17, 18 year old, we know that the conversation is not just, Oh, I get to make this decision. Your parents are within that. We're, we're in that conversation, your advisor, your college coach, there's so much to weigh. And I remember when I was working the draft, there's a few student, you know, high school athletes that actually decided to take their names out before the draft even started. Um, I'm not going to name any names, but one guy's already been redrafted before and he's, you know, in a minor league system. And this was back in 2017. And in my mind, you know, there's only so many opportunities in, in your life where you have leverage. When you're a high school athlete, if you look at the, the journeys of the big leagues, the most leverage you have is as a high school player, because you can choose, well, if you don't give me the sign bonus I want, I can go to college. Mm -hmm. And then when you're a junior in college, you have a little bit, you have, you have some leverage, not as much as a high schooler, but you can say, I can still come back to my senior year and sign. So when you talk about that type of decision, right, it's not linear. Um, there's so many factors that go on. And I think when you talk about the show's arc, you know, could there be some more opportunities to go inside that conversation between Jason, his father and his mom, Kim, right? You know, when they're sitting there weighing this opportunity, right? Because remember, it's not a guarantee that you get drafted again, right? You could right. go to college. Anything could happen. Uh, yeah. yeah, exactly. You could go to college and, and hit your body weight, yeah. you know, a buck 85 uh, in your first year in the SEC. And then, you know, a college coach has the power to pull your scholarship. Right. And you might have to transfer or you could have an injury. And so they're taking in all these factors. And I think being able to corner that drama as to like, OK, are we really making this decision? Because guess what? Is it is it better to take a, a, a smaller signing bonus? Right. And in the hopes of, yes, I finally got drafted and I've hit my goal and now I can start on that path. Or is it worth it to go play in college? Like those types of conversations when you're talking about parents who also not saying that all parents have a different agenda than their kids, but like they also have their expectations that they're going through too as well. Mm -hmm. Right. They're talking to the college coach. The college coach is like, I hope he drops like a brick so he can come to Arkansas. Then you've got the parents <laughs> who are like, well, we might have a potential to change the course of our whole entire family, you know, with with one signing bonus. You have that aspect. And I know they didn't really talk much about the financial situations of each kid. And I think that each player really I think they're all stable. I don't think we had anyone that was maybe you know lower income or anything like that from what I've seen. But like those are real conversations and what we've seen in other leagues. Right. You look at the NFL draft, the amount of people that are crying and, you know, tears in their eyes when their kid gets that opportunity um, because of that life-changing money. Like, I think they've done a great job of encapsulating that. Here, I think that, you know, you talked about the triple. I think, you know, if it is greenlit for next season, how can we get and grasp that? Because that's so much of what an advisor's role is, what a parent's role is. And then, you know, the kid is three, there's three factors in this. I think it's good to show that because those are where the real conversations go in. And parents have a lot to do with it, especially with high school prospects uh, when they're talking about their 17 or 18 year old going from prom, you know, to a professional organization. And let me be clear, because if for any reason LeBron James or Maverick Carter is watching this. <laughs> Hi, I'm Flobo. Your first, if, if this is your first at bat in this mm -hmm. regard, doing this, that is unprecedented. 
and you hit a triple, that is the start of a wonderful career. I'm just, you know, we are not saying a triple in regards to, yeah, it's a great, it is a great docuseries. It is something that we have been clamoring for. Flobito and I, I know, and many black baseball fans have been clamoring for this exact type of product. And, and it is, it hit the spot in many, many ways. Uh, one of the things you mentioned, Ronnie, that I think is, is that always resonates with me is when you're talking about the financial aspect of making those decisions for people that young in their families. Um, it always struck me. And again, we talk about the time periods and generations, but we would have never had Ricky Henderson. We would have never had Ricky Henderson, the greatest leadoff hitter, the greatest base dealer of all time, if he could have signed a football contract going out of high school. We would have never had Ricky Henderson. He was an amazing football player. He's an amazing running back. And the only reason he signed with baseball, because he was like, Ricky can get paid right now. Yeah. <laughs> and that's and I don't know how many other situations that we would have, you know, like I said, with the NBA changing some of their rules and certain things. I do want to go to the 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 prep for mm-hmm. draft night. There was there was a early scene in episode two where you're with Tamar Johnson. And he's with his he's with his rock sports advisors. One of them who has been on the show. Shout out, Mike. Uh, he's been on the mixtape. But they're talking about. I think they're casually talking about like, oh, what are we gonna wear? Like, so somebody has Louis yeah. and all that. But then in a really, I think, telling but really quick scene, you see everybody in the backyard sitting around a table, every laptop up, every like. They're crunching num- They're crunching something, mm-hmm. all in preparation for Tamar to get drafted, uh, hopefully early in the first round. Ronnie, what are those moments like for a player and the executives? Because we talked, we looked at the Pirates and they're almost giddy in the draft room that Tamar's dropped to four. But what are those last moments like? What are people crunching? What are what are agents looking at? What's happening? Because I know it's a very tense time. Well, I think, you know, the MLB draft is very different than other drafts because the NFL draft, for example, you can trade up, you can do some different, you know, strategic moves to be able to get the player that you want. And and MLB draft, it's remember, it's all completely slotted. So every single pick from pick one down to the last pick in the 10th round has a dollar amount assigned to it, right? And so you have different teams have different strategies, right? They want to either stay at slot, you know, pay below slot, or maybe they're willing to go above slot. Typically, you know, bigger market teams are willing to go above slot because if there's a penalty or a tax or there's anything associated with that, they know that they can levy, you know, going above slot for a player. But I think when you're looking at that scene, I think that's what they're looking at. They're like, all right, we've had conversations with these teams. Let's say Tamar, you know, the farthest he could fall was pick number 10. He goes as high as number one. You know, they're looking at that and they're saying, all right, team X, said that they're willing to go above slot if he falls to five. Team Y said, well, if he goes one overall, we're actually going to go below slot. I don't know if you guys knew this, but Royce Lewis, right, the hunter in 2017, he had Hunter Green. He was arguably the, the best prospect. I mean, I think he was the best prospect in the draft. But he falls to the Reds, right, mm-hmm. because of signability. Royce Lewis gets goes 1-1 one, one to the Twins, yep. and he signs below slot. Mm-hmm. But that's a strategy there because they know that they can now use some of that money, right, for other players that they're looking to draft in later rounds. And so that's what the each of those agents and his team there, I think that's what they're looking at. They're saying, all right, if he goes here, you know, are they willing to go above slot, right at slot, or below slot? Because ultimately they're trying to maximize his value. And every single pick in the draft kind of changes that equation. Um, and that's why you see things like this. You also see this later in the draft too. If you ever seen, if you're paying attention to it, I don't know how closely you pay, but like yeah, a college senior in the fourth round. Mm-hmm. And you're like, why do they do that? They did that because they can give that guy $15,000 as a signing bonus and they can use the rest of that slot value to maybe, you know, invest in another pick, right? The same thing happens throughout the draft. There are teams that are willing to pay more and there are teams that are willing to pay less. And ultimately, for Tamar to maximize his signing bonus, he wants to make sure that the team that picks him actually signs him. 
And there's also been instances where guys who have gone in the, in the first round that haven't signed because they couldn't come to that number. Mm-hmm. Right. And so that's what they're looking at. I think in that scene right there, and they're just making sure like if he goes one, one, are we actually going to get full slot? If he goes, you know, second overall, are they going to try to offer him below slot? Cause that's the type of process that the agents go through. Cause ultimately they want to get the most amount of money for them. And also remember agents, the only money they're going to make off of this guy is off of this signing bonus until he makes it to the the big leagues. And even then he's only going to make the league minimum, you know, until he hits arbitration. And so they know like, this is our best shot to maximize those dollars for tomorrow, but also for the agents who are incentivized to do that as well. That is a key, key point. We've had a couple of agents on the mixtape and all of them say the same thing. Baseball agents, unlike any other sport is not for the faint of heart because you are, oftentimes carrying um, your prospect all the way until the 40-man roster and then basically to that next contract. And so that is absolutely critical. We saw a lot of Tamar and Justin draft prep, getting ready for, you know, getting ready to, they they have the honor and the privilege to be invited to, um, to L.A., so they could be because they were kind of projected first round picks. But then they start calling names. And I always wanted to ask both Ronnie and Flo about this. But uh, Ronnie, since you've been there, are these teams just lying to players like flat out lying? Because not <laughs> only were we looking at Justin, but we had clips from Micah Johnson. We had clips from uh, Taylor Trammell. All of them are saying the same thing like, I was told if I'm available at this point, I'm going to be off the board. If I'm not off the board, I don't know what's going on. And I'm sitting here thinking, like, does every team just be like, look, every player, we're taking you. Because even to Tamar, who was he wasn't on the board long, he was drafted fourth. But there was a potential that Tamar could go first. There was a, a dramatic phone call. The Orioles are calling or somebody's calling. But right before the draft, and, and we're looking at that, and, and Justin's overall impression looks like him, him going at 17 – for everybody is be great. He was at when he got to like 12, 13, Justin was like, what's going on, brother? Like, are they just dishonest? What's happening here? I don't think they're dishonest at all. So this is a little bit of game theory here. So, you know, way the way that I've learned how drafts work, um, it's a sequential game. So after every pick that changes the outcome for the next pick, most likely if things don't play out the way that they're projected. And so as an, as a, a team executive, as a scout who maybe is talking directly, like you want to keep your options open and you have to sometimes tell guys like, Hey, like, you know, if you're here, we're going to take you there. Now they might be having those conversations with, with multiple prospects, but you have to realize because of the way that a draft plays out, if anything falls out of whatever they project that order to be, it can completely ruin the game. So if you've, if you've stopped conversation with a prospect simply because you thought that, you know, because tomorrow you thought he was going to go one, one and he didn't. And then all of a sudden you didn't do your due diligence and background and he was sitting there and you haven't had any conversations with him, you might miss an opportunity. And so that's why, you know, there's that quote unquote gamesmanship. And like I said, it's not nearly as much gamesmanship as maybe some other leagues where you can Mm -hmm. draft, you know, you can trade picks and, you know, try to trade up for X, Y, and Z. You can trade a, a current player for a host of draft picks and baseball. It's pretty linear and straightforward. But like you got to make sure that, you know, you're in contact with every single guy that could potentially, you know, fall to the draft pick that you have. And to make sure you have all your options covered, like I said, game theory, it's a sequential game. Every single, you know, pick changes the rules of the game based on who's available. And so you have to account for that. Yeah, I was. Uh, I didn't get to go to the draft itself. I was outside the little barriers, looking over <laughs> here. Were you, were you there? <laughs> yeah, I was walking by. It was it was an LA Live, which is like a big what? open area space. The draft Fantastic. last summer. Yeah, I, I couldn't afford the All Star game. That was my All Star game. And anyway, it, it, felt, it felt like people were surprised that I think Rocker went third overall. Rocker was, was the like, big surprise. And, yeah, and I think a lot of teams got like it, it broke <laughs> their strategy. Like, oh, okay, yeah. How are you going to account for that? Uh, but I had a question about the drafts uh, on my on my own uh, side. There, you talk about. The new version of the draft, the combine, a little bit of flash. I mean, San Diego is a beautiful city. I go out mm-hmm. there myself sometimes for weekends. But I, I ask you this, even though we are trying, or I think all of us are on our way trying to make baseball more accessible for the next mm-hmm. generation, is it a bit too flashy to have a, a draft as flourish as this one, knowing full well most of these people who are drafted? won't appear 
on teams three, four, five years down the line? Or is that a necessary evil, you think, for awareness for the brand? Well, I think, you know, number one, this is why it's so important to tell player stories. I mean, there's so many storylines that happen, you know, coming to the draft and post-draft that I think are extremely important. Um, you know, when you're talking about trying to leverage storytelling, one, as a revenue generator, two, to, to energize, the, the you know, your fan bases and your constituent groups. I think it's extremely important. I think it's not overkill with the draft, you know, having such a public forum, because if you look at the NFL and NBA, they're able to drive so much fan engagement interaction from these things. Like they've done it so well. I think baseball has to adapt or else it's going to be, you know, not saying that's going to become irrelevant, but like you look at just the digital engagement, right? I mean, I watched the NFL draft, you know, a lot. I watched the NBA draft and I like watching all drafts just because of my background, but just watching how like fans are engaging on Twitter, right? Discussing, you know, picks falling or, you know, so-and-so has been picked here. This guy's got some background issues. How could you draft him? Like the conversations are all driven because they've been able to fall a lot of these players' stories from the time that they were a five-star recruit in high school, if you're in football or basketball, all the way through college and now. We have to, I think in the game of baseball, saying we, we have to find a way to, like, all right, after draft day, when these kids go into oblivion, how can we continue the narrative, right? Mm -hmm. Because there's so much drama that goes on in a player's development from the time they sign their first professional co like contract to the big leagues. Like, I think those stories are unbelievable. I mean, I think every year there's a guy that makes it to the big leagues that's been toiling in the minors for 10 years. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Or more. Um, there's a guy on the Rockets. I can't remember his name. I see his face. W Winton. I can't yeah. remember Winton's last name. Yeah. Yeah. So you have guys like him, right? Uh, Winton Bernard, right? Winton Bernard. He has an unbelievable story. But like we haven't even been able to take taste that story for 10 years. You know what I mean? I think that we have to find a way within the game to continue telling these stories, whether it's in short form content, long form content, digitally through social media. And the athlete voice has to be portrayed. And, you know, that's what Uninterrupted is, is famous for, taking the athlete voice and, and amplifying it. And there's a huge opportunity, I think, within the game of baseball to do so. And, you know, there are so many minor leaders that have invigorating stories. We just need to tell those stories to keep people engaged. And so it's like, oh, the first time I see them is the, you know, a year before their big league debut at big league spring, spring training. There's a lot of that. And I think leagues like the Arizona fall league, right. Where guys are on the doorstep to the big leagues. There's so many storylines there having run that league that could be discussed that from a, I think a reality TV docu-series type type content. We need more aspects of that, right. For fans to tap in. I'm so glad you said that because here's my follow-up question. And I think it kind of relates to everything dubs tales. So on this mixtape, Cheats and I, we argue all the time. He's like, no, not again. About that dynamic between this, this drive to let the kids play, showing personality, showing the flair, whether on the uniform and personality, the Mars as, as a force of nature onto himself uh, versus playing the right way. I do feel like there is a, a, a need for that, the tradition, the way baseball has been, has been always been. Is it a conflict can they work together? What would it look like for the next generations to see if they can be themselves within the confines of this evolving sport? Well, I think it's a generational thing um, as it is. We're transitioning now, right? You know, you had a lot of baby boomers within leadership. You know, these guys were, you know, let's punch the nine to five. Let's let's do things a certain way. I, I, I'm very respectful. A lot of them were World War II veterans. War veterans, a very different generation um, that has been in leadership across all industries. This is not just baseball, right? But I think as you see more millennials, more, you know, Gen Z coming into leadership, we've actually grown up in a space and place where individuality within a, a certain context, right, is a part of our DNA, whether that's posting things on social media, um, whether that's, you know, different aspects of our life that have been different. As the generations shift, I think you're going to naturally see that change because, you know, the world is changing. I mean, every single year you have different generations going into power. Now I'll say this, when I see Jazz Chisholm literally do the Euro step across home plate, I think that that is the, the freshest thing on <laughs> God's green earth, right? It fires me up. Now, I think when you're in the confines of a team game, you have to be able to show the individualism because number one, these guys are brands within themselves. There's only a short timetable that you actually get to play a professional sport. And I think showing that individualism, one, creates an avenue for them um, to create other experiences for themselves, whether that's through, you know, marketing and endorsements. That's what it needs. And we've seen other leagues do that. So I think that that needs to be a part of it. I think as long as things stay within a team context, 
I think that we're good. Now, you know, there are distractions, right? I think every single organization, regardless of the, the sport or league, knows that if someone gets too much, right, they can be a distraction, whether that's Tim Tebow, Terrell Owens, or anybody, right? We know that distractions don't help teams win games. And so a manager in a front office has to manage those types of expectations with their players on how they should conduct themselves. But I think there has to be a shift. I think the way that we consume digital media and how that players have a voice to interact with fans in a way that they never did, you know, 30, 20 30, 40 years ago, I think that there's going to be a natural shift because you can show your individuality. And I think it's important for baseball to be able to harness that. But I think there has to be a quote unquote digital content strategy that really helps them maximize the number one revenue, but also that fan engagement, because that's how you really grow the game. And I know that there are people out there working on that. Um, and I'm excited to see how it looks. And I think, you know, docu-series like New Wave, that's the first foray. This is just a taste. I think there's going to be more and the more that they do things like this, you know, I think the better we're going to get to know players and the more opportunities alongside of what they get for doing shows like this will be able to permeate. I I think you're exactly right. I think Flo, the way that you asked the question, it made me think of we're both wrestling guys and made me think of something that I heard from of all people, Vince McMahon, um, they were talking about that transition when WWE was was going more quote unquote even more mainstream. This is probably after, you know, the ruthless aggression era. So they were going more family friendly, more mainstream. And they asked him about it. And they said, he said, if you want to do if if you want to be mainstream, you have to do more mainstream things. And so he had to be more ESPN friendly. We had to get on the front page of ESPN or the front page of USA Today. And I think of your question about the draft. And I have to think if we want the Major League Baseball draft to be on par with the conversations, right, that they're having in the NFL and the NBA when it comes to draft day or draft week or whatever it is, they have to do all the things that the the NBA and the NFL, because that's where we want the conversations not there yet. That is where we want the conversation to go. I wanted to bring up a question for all of you. Now that we've seen episode one, episode two, the docuseries culminated with the draft, uh, being drafted of, of Justin and Tamar. But when you look at all four characters, who would you have liked to see more of? And kind of what aspect of those those players would you have liked to see? That's a good question uh, because I do esports and I've been drafted on an esports team and I feel like I'm the best athlete. So it should be more of me in this show. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, when it comes to the the story, it was planted and when it was ended, I think RJ left me wanting more the most. And I think that's a good thing, right? Here is someone who was, has a very even temperament um, as far as like not too flashy, kept to himself, helped out the community and decided to go to a very, very good historic baseball program. Like I'm not saying give everyone a spinoff, but there was an RJ episode. I would totally watch that. Uh, but that said, every one of those, and I, I like the fact these four got to be in it because we didn't talk much about Justin Crawford, but he's legacy. And that alone to me is a story in itself, almost like an anime I've, arc. I have, so, I have so many questions about Justin Crawford. But that's, that's my answer. My short answer is RJ, more of Justin Crawford, but RJ is my answer for sure. I'll, I'll just jump in real quick. I'll let you, Ronnie, if you want to answer, you're glad to do so. Um, I wanted to know more about Tamar. It was the number four overall pick off the board. We kind of heard everyone talking about Tamar Johnson and what he brings, but I go back to what we were talking about. Now, I've done my research. I I know what lightning in a bottle looks like, and and I've seen all the highlights and clips I can get my hands on. But just on the surface, 5'7", 165, give or take, and you're like number four off the board. That guy has to be amazing. And you hear everything about him. And you see throughout the episode, you see glimpses of the personality, right? That's, that is one that is, hey, look, he, he takes up air in the room when he walks in, no matter what size he is, right? And, and, and they have that wonderful clip in episode two about how he, you know, was talking about being a scholar, a scholar, uh, like honorable academic scholar and also a baseball player. And this is somebody that clearly isn't going to college because he drafted four off the board. I wanted to dig deeper into like, and one of the things, and again, 
look at me, put my reality TV lens on, put my reality TV hat on. He clearly had a significant other girlfriend that was 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 there with him at the draft, and he had his family there with him. And I was like, I need more of this Tamar story. That's where I was with it. Ronnie, do you, do you have any do you have any thoughts in regards to who you would have wanted to see more of as you concluded? I think it's 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 not necessarily more of who I want to see more of. It's more about the dichotomy on the decision. And I say that because when you look at the decision to go play college baseball versus, you know, pursuing a pro contract, there is a lot of contrast there. You know, while Justin and Tamar we're able to get a seven-figure signing bonus, right? Being number four overall and 15th mm-hmm. overall. You also have this whole dichotomy of they're going to be on a bus in the middle of nowhere, you know, for the next two, three years. And, you know, having to grind it out in a way that's very different than RJ and Jason at mm-hmm. Vanderbilt in Arkansas. At Vanderbilt in Arkansas, they're going to be playing in front of tens of thousands of people every single game in meaningful baseball games. They're also going to have, you know, unbelievable facilities to work with outside of your spring training facility. And then maybe, you know, your, your home big league, you know, facility at your, your stadium. I mean, it's very give and take in some of these minor league ballparks across the country. Yep. Like you're not going to have the same access that you do at, at Arkansas or South Carolina or UCLA to elite facilities and all these different aspects that come with the college game. For example, you know, Tamar and Justin, they'll be on a bus somewhere in the middle of the Midwest, you know, going through the dog days of summer. Arkansas and Vanderbilt, those guys are flying charter to games. Yep. You know what I mean? They're going to have such an unbelievably plush experience, still around high-level players in a much more controlled environment. But I don't think they're – I think I want to see that dichotomy of what a college player's experience is you know, as they're going through this process versus a high school player. And then even a guy in the minor league saying like, well, I know that Jason and RJ would have loved to have been drafted and gotten the number that they wanted, but also they're not going through some of the things that Tamar and Justin are going through. And it's all calculated risk, right? It might actually, you know, help grow their player development going to an Arkansas or Vanderbilt even more so than Tamar or Justin, based on just some different factors that we don't necessarily see uh, within the docu-series. And I think a lot of people don't realize those those stark differences, you know, when you go and you you play big-time Division One college baseball at a power conference. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think Tim Jones said it best when he's like, hey, we got a five-year plan. Mm-hmm. Whether, it's, whether it's get drafted immediately and, and mm-hmm. you know, five years in the minors, or if it's Go to Arkansas and try again in twenty five. We we've got this five year plan. I thought, I thought Tim, look, uh, Flo, you and I talked about J- uh, Jason's dad in episode one. I was I was a little bit more on board with with Jason's dad than you were, but I really mm-hmm. thought he he really redeemed himself well. He he showed well in episode two. I, I think so too, and I think and I think is back to the your issue about the lack of drama because after the first episode or or first half, I was like, oh, here's our villain. But at the end of it, it kind of has like this philosophical thing. Like, wouldn't you do anything for your children? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so yeah. it's like, ah, oh, well, I can't be that mad. Yeah. But I mean, but Barani had a good point. Like seeing the that actual video game image graphic come to life. Because even though I'm not sure what kind of bus they have, my brain is thinking the old school buses from the 70s. <laughs> like, like, I know it's not the case. Like a Negro League bus <laughs> on a, like, the minor leagues. That's what I'm saying. Or, like, or something like that. As, I, will, I always want to see that as well. But but uh, Ronnie, you're you're in the college space now. And uh, yeah. you're, at, you're at a school that has a, a very robust program with many different disciplines here. What's that like with people who to choose college to, to, to hone their game? Is, is it come from a place of, I just want to be the best I can? Is it seen as a second option? Is it seen as an option 1A? What's been your perspective? Well, I mean, you know, having been a college baseball player at the Division One level and then having coached college baseball and seeing some of these things, you know, it's, it's, it's really about how you frame it. Everything's about framing to me. Um, because the thing is, there are pros and cons to every type of environment. You have to know what type of player you are and also what type of environment you, you you thrive in. I think that for certain people who are intrinsically motivated and they can understand that like within the pro context is all on you. I mean, it takes that's you might function well in the pro game. Now, if you have some development that you need to go within that context, college might be better for you because it's a very controlled environment. You know, you've got a coach. Uh, you've got the student athlete development staff, you've got trainers, all these people who structure your life for you to really, you know, put you in position to succeed. Now, granted, 
college is very much a team game. I think Micah Johnson talked a little bit about that. He said it's a very team game. It's very controlled. And like that can be really good for some people and really bad for others, depending on your temperament. Right. Um, but college and, and pros, it, like I said, it really depends on the development of the player and what type of mindset they have around the decision that they make. Um, and like I said, some people need to mature in college, like going into a professional environment, even though you get a paycheck, right, a huge signing bonus, sometimes that person isn't prepared to the expectations that come with that level of, of upfront, you know, investment, you know, at the age that they're at. Some people need to go to college to be able to understand, I need to be able to create a routine for myself. Baseball is a developmental game. How do you handle failure, Right. Doing that in a controlled environment in college can be maybe better than toiling in the minor leagues and having to kind of sit with yourself and those expectations if you're not prepared for it. Smart, man. Absolutely. One thing, I guess, kind of some of the final comments as we wrap up and we want to go, I, I want to feel, I feel like we on this show haven't given Justin enough due in regards to his story, his family dynamic, getting getting drafted, uh, I thought I thought I thought he was very cool. I thought he was a very cool person to follow in episode two and in the season. And I and and there's something about he you could tell there was some some anxious moments there, especially when they were calling numbers off the draft board. But the the cool thing about Justin Crawford, I felt like, was like he almost had a sense of like he was kind of used to this. He like been there before, and I don't know if it's just you know, growing up with with his dad and they had some young pictures and clips of him uh, being around the field and being around major leaguers, or if it's going to a place like uh, Bishop Gorman in, in Nevada that has a lot of, you know, that, that, like just that. Has, that has a lot of legacy involved in regards to the, uh, the, the school. Like it's a, I know it's a big football school, but it's a, it's a school that has a lot of big time athletics. Um, one of the things that came up was all the other players were like, I'm too nervous to eat. I'm too nervous. And, and Justin's like, I may eat, I may eat a little something. And then the next scene, it's like him eating. Right. And it was just like, man, that, that he has a cool demeanor about him where it doesn't look like he gets too high or too low. And I think at some point, I think it might've been in episode one, but the coaches were talking about him and they said, when he decided to be Justin Crawford, as opposed to being anyone else or being anyone's son, then he really kind of found himself. And to find that so early for a young player, and it's, you know, you look at the, the players that were going to college and you're like, you hope that Jason and RJ can kind of help find themselves and hopefully tomorrow he has it. But, but Justin has it. He has this, I know who I am now and I've got to deliver. And I just thought, you know, following him in episode two was was, was kind of cool to see. That's absolutely true. That's absolutely true. I think having that depth and having that uh, perspective is is pretty awesome. But speaking of perspectives, here's my last question for you, Ronnie. Thanks so much for being on the show. Appreciate you for this one. We saw a lot of um, individuals in the background giving high fives and saying, wow. good job, kid, be inside. Was there <laughs> anyone watching that you kind of wish had more mic time Hear about their perspective of, of how baseball was evolving for these young talent? I mean, I think it's a, it's not necessarily the people that we saw in the documentary, but I just want to kind of go into the intentionality behind a lot of the behind the scenes people that you don't even know were a part of it that were mm. producers and, you know, our director. I mean, so first off, there's a lot of intentionality in, as to like how they they frame this whole documentary. You know, the first person I want to shout out is, of course, Matt Perry, who's a director. He's a former minor league baseball player. He was drafted nice. out of Boston College. Um, he also, uh, you know, is a producer on the shop. Um, he had a lot of insights on how this because he had been through the process himself. And so like getting his perspectives, some of the reasons I think it was shot so well because he had been through it before. Um, another producer on there, Jackson New Smith, he worked in the commissioner's office. He actually worked when I was up there. He worked in uh, labor relations, Lee economics. He worked for the Rays and baseball operations. He also worked for the Cubs and baseball operations. They went out and actually scouted these players to make sure like, all right, and got real evaluations. Are these the right people we need to follow? Are these the storylines that we can, you know, really drive? And there was a lot of intentionality around that. Uh, Amber Sabathia, CC Sabathia's, uh, you know, his wife, she's an agent for CAA. Shout she, out. She's going to be on the show one of these days. Amber knows this. Amber, you're going to be on the mixtape. Go ahead. 
But like they, there was so much intentionality as to like how this was framed from true experts within the space. And I think that's extremely important uh, to understand that like this wasn't something that like, oh, we're just going to put a documentary together on, you know, the MLB draft process and these four players is like, no, there was so much strategy and thought that came from this from certain people. Uh, Also, just, you know, an homage to, you know, other black voices within the game. There are so many out there, right? I know that people talk about the the lack of African-Americans in leadership positions within the game of baseball. There is a next generation coming of people um, that are, I think, going to have a profound impact on the game. I know you guys have talked to Tony Regans. You know, he was, a, you know, the first ever black GM in the Angels, the fourth ever in history. Guys like Del Matthews, you know, who have had an unbelievable impact at the commissioner's office working in baseball development. Tyrone Brooks, who, you know, he's been an unbelievable person in my life as I tried to go through the baseball operations space. But there are people that they've helped develop that are in this space um, that I think that they need to be highlighted as well. Um, guys like, a, you know, Jalen Phillips with the Dodgers, he used to work at the commissioner's office. Guys like Devin Pearson, who's working in the Boston Red Sox. Guys like Kevin Graves. I can go down the list. There are numerous African-American voices, both in the front office and, you know, within the MLB pipeline that I think, you know, can have a tremendous impact on this game. But, you know, back to what I was discussing, the intentionality behind, you know, the people who helped create this documentary and took it from an idea to life. I mean, uh, really just, you know, kudos to them. And, you know, hopefully it gets greenlit for season two. And we got to add and make sure we don't forget guys like Ronnie Burton. Because oh, yeah. Oh, you're, yeah. you're on that list as well of all, all the folks you previously mentioned. Quite a few of them, I'm honored to say, are friends of the mixtape. We've had Dell, we've had Tyrone, we've had Tony on. Uh, we've had quite a few. And now we've had Ronnie on as well. So thank you, brother, for all you have done uh, to help move this project forward in particular, but also to add your voice to the game because these are the these are the types of things we need. These are the types of conversations we we're, we're fortunate enough to have. And I think it only gets better because yeah. at the end of the series, when they're rolling the credits, not only did you did, to see the four names that we're following, RJ, Jason, Tamar, and Justin, but then you heard names like Elijah Green. And Cam mm-hmm. Collier as well. Drew, we Jones. Mentioned Drew yeah. Jones and Kumar Rocker, right? Mm-hmm. And so, and that's just this particular 2022 draft class, which we 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 know is special, but there's nothing stopping this train, I think, as it keeps moving. And I do think I'll I'll leave it at this. <laughs> I do think there is a lot of opportunity, Ronnie. There's a lot of opportunity to keep these types of things going, whether they're in short form, long form, digital, there's so much that when you were even talking about it, um, following players mm-hmm. in those complex leagues, because mm-hmm. those guys, they have names. If they had just kept the cameras rolling, Drew Jones and, and tomorrow they were playing games. They were mm-hmm. in that world. And now what we're seeing with both Jason and RJ, both of them are on the field this season. RJ's, I think, started every game at Vanderbilt. Mm-hmm. And Jason has gotten quite a few get uh quite a bit of game action as well. So we've got to leave it there. Coming from Lobito Cheats. We want to thank Ronnie. If you haven't watched New Wave Baseball's Next Generation, it is on YouTube. It's uninterrupted. It is phenomenal. And it's something that we should all see, watch, share and really lift up because it is an an amazing project. So from all of us at the Black Baseball Mixtape, thank you. And until next time, we're out. Thank you, guys.